The words of Jesus, they, they trail behind Peter as he walks into the courtyard. This, is, this very night, tonight, you will all fall away on account of me, just as it is written. His response to Jesus is still seared in his memory. Jesus, even if all fall away on account of you, I never will. Jesus presses the point. He tells him that even he will disown his Lord not once, twice, but three times. And yet Peter doubles down. Even if I have to die with you, Jesus, I will never disown you. Peter can feel the weight of the sword that was in his hand as his anger stepped in between his Lord and his enemies to defend Jesus. Jesus rebukes him and the sting vibrates through the steel right to his heart. But but there's nothing that pierced Peter's heart like the very next moment. It really took him. He, he really gave himself up. It was really Judas. When I get my hands on that lying, money-hungry traitor. But this wasn't the time. Everyone else ran, but not Peter. Matthew 26, 58 records the, the, the stealth of the one disciple who refused to abandon Jesus. Peter followed him at a distance. Right up to the courtyard of the high priest, he entered and sat down with the guards to see the outcome. Now listen, maybe Peter was just looking for his moment, right, right? Maybe that fight with the guard was not wrong, or was wrong not because of the act, but because of the timing, right? Peter wanted to be close by so he could hear the signal from Jesus, but he couldn't be too close just in case he was recognized. So he stayed at a distance, waiting, watching, sitting And while his Lord is mocked, falsely accused, and slapped across the face, he watches, he waits for his moment in his thoughts and in his feelings. This morning, we step back into the story in a courtyard where our Lord is being mistreated, falsely accused. And yet he stands in the face of hate and fear and and sin-twisted hearts that are bent on his destruction as well as their own. This morning, we focus on on a different angle of the scene of that night. This morning, we stumble into the story for imperfect disciples, the broken ones who don't have it all together, the ones who can't seem to shake their sin, the ones who find themselves moving further and further away from Jesus in their shame. Because they struggle to receive his love, his merciful love. This is a passage of scripture for those who struggle to obey and are tempted to deny. If you've ever wrestled with temptation or fear or shame, then Peter's story is for you. In fact, let me try something because I know I'm not Hannibal, but I should probably try this. Can everybody turn to their neighbor and say, this is for you? Wow, that's pretty harsh. I can't believe you guys, you know, let's balance that out. Turn to your other neighbor and say, this is for me. (laughs) See, I got you on that one. This is for each of us. Because we all know the struggle that Peter wrestles with in this moment. And I want us to talk through this story with three particular words. Prophecy, memory, and humility. You see, this is a story of prophecy that's fulfilled memory that leads to repentance, and the humility that marks every true follower of Jesus. Prophecy, memory, humility. 
And I want us to start by looking at the transition that actually takes place within this scene in our passage in Matthew that moves us from focusing on Jesus to focusing on Peter. And so if you've got your journals, I actually want you to flip back a page to the text we were in last week. If you've got a Bible, we're in Matthew 22, 67. Let me repeat that. Matthew 26, 67 through 68, just a couple verses up. And we read this. They spit in Jesus' face and struck him with their fists. Others slapped him and said, prophesy to us, Messiah, who hit you? They mock him. The one that the gospel of John calls the very word of God. The one that Colossians 1 declares is the image of the invisible God. The one who reveals God and speaks the very words of God. He is taunted, turning this act of God, prophecy, into an act of mockery. And yet... This is where Matthew chooses to turn his story to another character. Why? Because irony of ironies, as the Son of God is mocked about prophecies, one of his prophecies is about to be fulfilled outside this pseudo-courtroom. The text tells us in Matthew 26, verse 69, that Peter is sitting out in the courtyard. He's in his thoughts and in his feelings. He's wondering what's about to happen when the servant girl approaches him. Also, we're with Jesus of Galilee, she says. Her, her voice is more curious than it is condemning, but, but there's a panic that he felt in the garden that starts to rise in him again. This isn't a guard. This isn't a soldier. This isn't uh, the ruler of a synagogue somewhere. This is a little girl who serves the wealthy. Her power is minimal. And yet the fear grows with every word, and before he even realizes what he's saying, his fear leads him to do what he said he would never do. Verse 70, he denied it before them all. Now, as you read this story, I'll be honest, his denial feels a little bit more knee-jerk than thought out. Right? He t- tries to dodge her statement of relationship with a declaration of ignorance. I don't know what you're talking about. And the fear rising in him convinces him that to be associated with Jesus, the man that's being sentenced to death across the courtyard, is a fatal mistake. He is afraid of being identified as someone who had been with Jesus. Standing before the garden, the garden, the garden, he squares up and he swings a sword. But sitting in front of this servant girl, he flinches and he fails, dodging her statement, lying to her, and pleading the fifth. He dances around the truth, and the shock of the moment pushes him away from Jesus. The text tells us, verse 71, that he went out to the gateway. Peter goes out further, away from the courtyard where other gospels that have recorded this story say that there was this fire burning in the middle of that courtyard. People were warming themselves around them, and Peter is retreating from the light. He's going out to the shadows where another voice confronts him where another servant girl saw him and said to the people there, this fellow was with Jesus of Nazareth. As those shadows flicker around him, another powerless voice speaks, not just to Peter, but to those that are within earshot. This guy was with Jesus. And he is recognized as someone who followed Jesus. And yet his fear turns another servant girl into an accuser. And by now, the fear that filled his chest is overwhelming his attempts at dancing around the truth, and his panic spills out in full-fledged denial. Verse 72, he denied it again, this time with an oath. I don't know the man. 
Denial number two comes out of him with the irony of a promise, right? The, the word that is used there is an oath. It's, it's, used, it, it's a kind of oath that are used in legal proceedings. They would be the equivalent of putting your hands on the Bible in the courtroom and swelling to tell the truth, the whole truth, and nothing but the truth, so help me God. That's the kind of oath he's swearing. His new promise is overriding his old promise. And I will never disown you fades from his heart as I don't know the man spills out of his lips. He can't even bring himself to say the name of Jesus. He's moved from I don't know what you're talking about to I don't know who you're talking about. I don't know the man. Now apparently, the crowd takes what he says at face value because the servant's girl, the servant girl's voice doesn't devolve into the shouts of a mob out to get Peter. But it's really only a matter of time. Verse 73. After a little while, those standing there no longer a servant girl or two, but a crowd, they went up to Peter and said, surely, surely you're one of them. Your accent gives you away. One of them. Right? The words, they sting his ears because he knows they're talking about disciples. He is one of them, but he's been trying to hide his identity. And yet even in the shadows, his voice betrays him. You see, the Galilean accent was not hard to pick out especially in a crowd in the middle of a city with religious elites and their servants surrounding. If I had to do a modern-day equivalent, his accent would have stood out as much as, you know what, I'm not going to get myself in trouble saying that. <laughs> Let's just say that his accent would have brought all the wrong kind of ideas. And Peter's fear, it twists the crowd into a mob as he reacts with, with verbal violence, as is Peter's MO, to once again try and get himself out of a sticky situation. Verse 74, he began to call down curses, and he swore to them, I don't know the man. Peter's essentially saying, may God strike me down if I'm lying to you, which he is, about the God he's swearing by. Now, he's swearing. He's not cussing. He's saying something like, I swear I'm not lying. I swear on my own life that I'm not lying. And the irony of this cursing fills the scene with this repeated phrase, I don't know the man. In his darkest moment, Peter does exactly what he says he would never do. He does exactly what the Savior knew he would do, what the Messiah had prophesied he would do. And as I read this story, the warning of the garden flashes across my mind. The spirit is willing, but the flesh is weak. And, and I think, church, that's something we cannot miss in this scene. The spirit might be willing, but the flesh is weak. Paul warns the church in uh, 1 Corinthians 10, 12. He says, let anyone who thinks that he stands take heed lest he fall. Let me take you back to that scene at the Last Supper, surrounded by the disciples as Jesus is talking and Peter is talking. And for all of his bravado and strength and big words, Peter looks into the eyes of his Savior and told him, listen, you may say that I will fall, but I say that I would never. Who does that? Right? He looked at the maker of heaven and earth, at his maker, and essentially does like this reverse sermon on the mount. Jesus, you may say, but I tell you. Peter tries to convince Jesus that he may be right about a lot of things, but, but you're wrong on this one. 
On this one, Jesus, you've missed something. You've missed Peter's strength, his dedication, his loyalty, and yet at the words of two slave girls and a crowd that is not even important enough to be in the middle of the pseudo-trial of Jesus, Peter folds. But Jesus knew that would happen. Not only do we, did he know this, but, but go back to the table. Actually, Luke records that same scene, and he says these things that, that Jesus tells Peter. He says specifically, Simon, Simon, another name for Peter. Satan has asked to sift all of you as wheat. But I have prayed for you, Simon, that your faith may not fail. And when you have turned back, strengthen your brothers. Not only did Jesus know what was coming, what would erupt out of the heart of his most brash disciple, he also knew that what Peter needed most was not strength to succeed, but prayer that his faith would endure his failure. That in the midst of his failure, his faith would not fail. Jesus, in this scene in Luke, peels back the curtain on the cosmic events that surrounds our scene in Matthew and explains how the enemy is going after all of the disciples, especially Peter. But, but Jesus has work for Peter to do after he fails. After he fails and turns back, Peter has a job to do. And all of this comes to bear on our scene in Matthew as the third and final denial escapes Peter's mouth and his heart. The prophecy that Jesus gives here and is fulfilled in this moment teaches us two things that I want us to pay attention to. Number one, our sins do not surprise Jesus. And number two, his compassion should not surprise us. Our sins do not surprise Jesus. And I want you to hear me when I say this. When Jesus died on the cross, he died for your future sins. You are future to when Jesus died. It sounds like a very simple thing, but as you think about it and meditate on it, you realize that he went to the cross knowing each and every denial, every sin, every betrayal, everything you would ever do, and he went anyways because he loves you. Our sins do not surprise him, and yet his compassion should not surprise us. Jesus died not just for your sins, not just for my sins, but for the sin that was happening across the courtyard as Peter's betraying him. It is Christ's love and compassion that continues to stand before his accusers, even as his boldest disciple is, is sitting in shame and denial at even knowing him. He's not surprised by Peter's denial, and his compassion pours out even in this moment because you see, even as I talk about this warning that the, the spirit might be willing, but the flesh is weak, there is an encouragement in this darkness. In the midst of denial in this false trial, after Peter has called down curses and sworn that he is ignorant of the one he called Lord, there's another sound that rips through the night and awakens a crucial memory. And in a crucial moment, the prophecy of Jesus becomes the memory of Peter. And it does something, not just to his mind, but to his heart. Verse 74, immediately a rooster crowed. Immediately the sound of a rooster stops time because in that sound, everything comes together. All of his pride comes crashing down. His weakness overtakes his fear and his panic. And, and as one commentator, Matthew Henry, puts it, the crowing is to Peter, instead of John the Baptist, the voice of one calling to repentance. This is the, the snap back to reality that Jesus provided for Peter in his prophecy. 
In Luke's account that we get of Peter's denial, we actually, there's even more. It's not just the sound of a rooster that happens. Luke records this scene as well, and he records something happening between the rooster crowing and Peter recognizing what's happening, reacting. Luke writes, Peter replied, man, I don't know what you're talking about. Third and final denial. And just as he was speaking, the rooster crowed, and the Lord turned and looked straight at Peter. Immediately, Peter is snatched out of the fog of panic and denial and reminded of the words of Jesus by a sound and by a look. Verse 75 in our text in Matthew, Peter remembered the word Jesus had spoken, and he went outside and he wept bitterly. The rooster and the look of Jesus triggers Peter not into defensiveness, or, or to hardness of heart, but, but conviction and repentance. The sound of the rooster is the beginning of Peter's return to Christ. In this scene, he has moved further and further away from Jesus, and even now the text says he moves outside. But even then, as his faith flickers and burns low, it does not go out. Not because Peter has kept it alive, but because Jesus has prayed for him. Remember Luke 22, I have prayed for you, Simon, that your faith may not fail, and when you have turned back, strengthen your brothers. You see, Jesus prophesied not just that Peter would deny him, but that Peter would turn back. He would repent. It is Jesus' prayer that, that kept Peter's faith from burning out, smothered by shame and condemnation. It is Jesus' prayer that draws Peter back. Believing the words of Christ and in that memory moving him to repentance. And all of that is wrapped up in the sound of a rooster and the look of a savior filled with compassion rather than condemnation. And here's the encouragement of this scene that I want us to catch. Remembering leads to repentance. Remembering leads to repentance. Let me ask you something. Why do you think we have this story in every single gospel we have here? This story of Peter's denial is recorded in every single, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. Why is that? Why would every single gospel writer include the story of when Peter, the, the leader of the disciples, the guy who walked on water, the, the first of the disciples to claim, say, Jesus, you are the Christ, the guy who later in Acts is going to be the apostle to the Gentiles and take the gospel all, all sorts of new territory and even write two letters in the New Testament. Why in the world do the gospel writers include the story of his biggest failure in the pages of the Bible for everyone to see? Well, for one, I think it makes me even more confident that this story is true. Because no one making up a religion and trying to write and convince people to do things includes stories of failure like this. This is the guy. Like, Peter is one of the forerunners. You don't include his biggest failure in the story. But I think on a deeper level, on a deeper level, this story displays this fundamental reality of the kingdom, that God uses broken sinners to accomplish his purposes. The only requirement is repentance. Because, you know what's mind-blowing to me? There are details in this story that only Peter would have known. You know what that means? that Peter, to some degree, had to tell them what happened. That it's not just that they included the story here, but that Peter told them the story and told them to include it in here. I can almost imagine Peter saying, you need to tell the story, not because I look great in it, but because Jesus looks so good in it. And here's why I say that. Because as Peter weeps, he moves further and further away from Jesus, the story shows us that Jesus moves closer to him. 
First with the look that I mentioned in Luke, but then later there's this reversal of Peter's denial, and the story is actually recorded in the Gospel of John, and I, and I want to move us there so that we can actually see this, this epilogue to Peter's denial where we move from prophecy and memory to humility. And let me catch you up before I enter that scene with you, because Peter's tears in this moment, they turn to defeat in what appears to be the defeat of Jesus at the crucifixion. Right? He, he is tor- Jesus is tortured and crucified, and if you look at the Gospels, Peter's name is nowhere near any of the scenes of crucifixion. And yet when Jesus rises from the dead three days later, Peter hears this report of these Easter women, Mary and, and all these female disciples that Jesus had, and he runs to the tomb, but he encounters an open tomb and an empty tomb, but no Jesus. And the text tells us that he decides to go fishing, which tells me that Peter's hope maybe got a little bit up, but he's still feeling what happened. He goes fishing along with other disciples who used to be fishermen, and he does what he knows to do. He goes back to fishing, and then something happens. Someone shows up on the shore. There's a man on the shore, and they don't recognize the voice. They can't really see who it is, but the voice tells them to do something that they do recognize. That sounds familiar. It says, throw your empty nets on the other side. And as the fish throw themselves at these fishermen, one of Jesus' disciples like elbows Peter and says, it is the Lord. And Peter needs no other encouragement. He jumps over into the water, and he doesn't even need Jesus to call him out of the boat to walk. He's going to swim all the way back to shore. His heart had hoped after the reports, but his eyes had not yet seen. And when he gets on the shore, he can't take his eyes off of Jesus. Eventually, the rest of the disciples, they get the boat and their huge, miraculous catch back to the shore, and Jesus starts cooking breakfast. And let me tell you the story, trust me, read it later this afternoon, it's an awkward breakfast. Like, like John even records that, like, hey, nobody asked him who he was because they all knew he was the Lord, so it kind of is, like, a silent and weird. And you can imagine Peter going, like, hopeful that Jesus is here, but, like, does he know, he looked at me, does he know what happened? But then something else happens. We pick up the text in John 21, verse 15. When they had finished eating, Jesus said to Simon Peter, Simon, son of John, do you love me more than these? Yes, Lord, he said. You know that I love you. Jesus said, feed my lambs. Again, Jesus said, Simon, son of John, do you love me? He answered, yes, Lord, you know that I love you. Jesus said, take care of my sheep. The third time he said to him, Simon, son of John, do you love me? Peter was hurt because... Jesus asked him a third time, do you love me? And Peter says, Lord, you know all things. You know that I love you. Jesus said, feed my sheep. In this final conversation, Jesus' prophecy is truly fulfilled. Because Peter's memory is marked not by condemnation, but by conviction and compassion. And the humility of salvation has unearthed the pride that led to his fall. And with three questions, Jesus transforms each denial into an opportunity for restorative love. With each question, do you love me, Peter's answer is yes. Not because he is so good, but because Jesus is. And church, I think we really need to get this as we're reading this this denial and this restoration. We need to see the mercy of Jesus in all of its glory. There's this writer who put it in ways that I couldn't, and it haunts me, I guess that's the right word to say, haunts me to this day. Thomas Watson, one of the Puritans, he writes, God is more willing to pardon than to punish. Mercy does more multiply in him than sin in us. Mercy 
is his nature. You know why it haunts me? Because I so often don't believe that. I so often struggle to actually think that that's true. This scene in John is Peter's restoration, and the reality is it could only happen after the cross. Because it is on the cross that Jesus took the punishment, not just for the sins of the whole world, but for the sins of Peter. For your sins, for my sins. Jesus was killed at the hands of sinners. He did not deserve it, but that is exactly why he came, to die in our place for our sins. And, and when I say sins, I don't just mean abstract sins. I mean our actual sins. What distinguishes between people who are saved and people who are not is not how many sins we've committed or the kinds of sins we have committed, as if one sin keeps us further away from God than another. Well, the difference is repentance. It is humility that leads us to the cross over and over and over again. As one pastor puts it, Jesus is a real savior of real sinners, a great savior of great failures. And I can't stress this enough that knowing this, believing this, and living into this reality is freedom because we no longer have to pretend that we are not sinners, that we have it all together, that our sin is not really that bad. Heart check. Do we really believe, think, and understand that Jesus had to die for our sins? That it really is that bad? That Jesus didn't get just three years with the opportunity for parole? That Jesus was crucified, the equivalent of sitting in an electric chair or getting a lethal injection in your arm? Jesus was executed for our sins. He died for us because that's what our sins deserve. And church family, this is freedom. Do you know why? Because we no longer have to sit in our shame and in our regret. Because of what he did, we can look up and see our Savior who took all of our sins away. Part of the problem is we don't recognize that we actually have an enemy that is doing everything to counteract that so that we might dwell on the sin and shame that keeps us from him. 1 Peter 5.8, and yes, it's the same Peter we're talking about writes that our enemy prowls around like a roaring lion looking for someone to devour. Peter knew this firsthand. Church tradition actually holds that for the rest of his life, Peter couldn't hear the sound of a rooster without weeping. Now, I have no idea if that's true, but I know that it's true in my life, that it happens to me over and over again. My past failures, my sins, they haunt me. The enemy tries to overwhelm me with them. But like that old song says, when Satan tempts me to despair, he tries to tell me of the guilt within. Upward I look and see him there, the one, who made, who went, the one who made an end to all my sin. Familia, we have to get this. We have to understand that when Jesus picked us, when Jesus picked you, when he opened your eyes to his truth and opened your heart to his love, he knew every single one of your future failures, just like he knew Peter's. And he picked you anyways. Because your strength is not dependent on you, it's dependent on him. He wanted you, he wanted us, like he wanted Peter and the disciples. He wants us to watch and pray because our spirit might be willing, but the flesh is weak. But the scriptures remind us that he not only prayed for Peter, he also continually prays for us. 
Hebrews 7 verse 25 says that Jesus is able to save to the uttermost those who draw near to God through him since he always lives to make intercession for them. He intercedes. He prays for us. One scholar said that Jesus' prayer was stronger than Peter's sin. And I'll tell you, church, it's stronger than our sin too. None of us want to believe that we would deny Jesus when, when someone asks us about our faith. None of us want to believe that we would deny Jesus by sinning and doing what he said we shouldn't do or not doing what he said we should do, what he has commanded us to do. None of us want to believe that we would deny Jesus, but Jesus knows what's in each of us. He knows our hearts. He knows that we might be willing, but our flesh is weak. And he calls us not to do better, but to be watchful and to be prayerful. In other words, he calls us to depend on him. And even when we fail to remember him, I think we really struggle with this because we, we, we really think either that our sins are not that bad or that our strength is a lot higher than it is, right? Like Peter, we say, you know, they all, everybody, everybody in this section might disown you, Jesus, and everybody in this section might disown you, Jesus, but never me. I think we struggle because we don't think sin is that bad. We think we are so good. Well, we think we have to earn it, that we got the gospel at the very beginning, we understood, we believed Jesus, and we got it all figured out, and the rest is up to us. But that's not what the scriptures testify to. That's not what the story shows us, that it is not our strength, but his that holds on to us. It is not our ability, but his spirit that holds on to us. It's not a gospel of self, but a gospel of a sinless Savior who died in our place that our souls might be counted free. He made him who knew no sin to be sin for us, that we might be the righteousness of God. This is the gospel. When we fail, we need to remember that. We need to remember him, because remembering really does lead to repentance. This is the defining mark of every single disciple, brokenness over sin that leads to repentance, and Peter is this premier example of this. I don't want you to leave this service without meditating on or really wrestling with the reality that God uses broken sinners to accomplish his purposes. All that is required, the only requirement is repentance. It was part of his story, this failure, this, for the rest of his life, this failure is part of his story, but it is not what defines Peter because the story doesn't end there. You see, Jesus specializes in making broken sinners into broken saints who are in the process of healing. He takes weak failures like Peter and makes them into rocks of strength for his church. Peter's story doesn't end in failure and neither does yours. It is never too late. You are never too far from Jesus. Our failures and our sins, they might be awful. They might haunt us. They might humiliate us every time we think about them. But they are not the end of the road. They are the path that lead us over and over and over again to the cross. This is what it means to follow Jesus, the one who paid for all of our sins and failures not that we might dwell on our past and be humiliated on our sin, but that we might focus on his salvation and be humbled by our Savior. That same hymn calls us to believe that because the sinless Savior died, my sinful soul is counted free, for God the just is satisfied to look on him and pardon me. May we live in the freedom that repentance brings as we depend on the Savior of failures and the Lord of losers saved by grace. May we be strengthened by the Spirit to tell others about his mercy, not just in some abstract way, but in a reality that, that, that Jesus really does love you. 
by our lives and by our love, may we point people to the Father who sent his only Son to die for us and come back to life for us, that by his Spirit, our betrayal might become love for him and for others. Let's pray that that might be true of us this week. Would you pray with me? Father, you are just and you are good and your love and your justice are seen brightest in the cross of your Son. This morning, as we feel the conviction of your word, would you draw us closer to you? Our shame, it tempts us to move away from you. And so we pray that in your compassion, you would draw us close. Would you help us feel and experience your compassion as we sing and as we pray? Would you open up our hearts to one another that we might have opportunities to preach the gospel to each other? Would you empower us to lead each other back to the cross? That the shame of sin that the enemy constantly tries to shove in our faces would fall away and we would see a Savior who welcomes us with open arms. Would you enable us as a family to protect those who were baptized today by pointing them to the gospel every time that the enemy points them to their sin? May we embody gospel grace and mercy that you might shape us as a community that doesn't just talk gospel but actually lives gospel. Lord, you know that we are all failures in one way or another. So we throw ourselves on your mercy this morning. We answer with Peter, Lord, you know that we love you. You know all things. You know our hearts. Do not let us drown in despair or puff up with pride. May you empower us to live in the freedom of repentance and telling others of the life and love found in Christ alone. We pray all these things in the name of Jesus. Amen.